Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 13. Velvy knew he'd been converted. He had a war now in which to fight. He got out of bed and walked across to the window of the box room in which he'd been put. He was lucky. He slept alone. The three women shared a room, while Pertrand, showing off, Velvine thought, slept on a sofa. In the pale light of dawn he glanced at the clay figure, to see it had changed once more. He approached it. The figure was better modelled, all the lumps gone, the limbs smooth, shapely, the posture better, the back showing a hint of vertebrae and ribs. Still no sign, though, if it was a man or a woman. But what on earth was the thing? He returned to his bed. There was just enough light now to read. He took up his copy of Engels and read, I have never seen a class so deeply demoralised, so incurably debased by selfishness, so corroded within, so incapable of progress, as the English bourgeoisie. And I mean by this, especially the bourgeoisie proper, particularly the liberal, corn-law-repealing bourgeoisie. For it, nothing exists in this world, except for the sake of money. Itself not excluded, it knows no bliss save that of rapid gain, no pain save that of losing gold. Velvine cursed and put the book aside. That was a description of him, a man for whom gold was all and men so little. He'd been a lummox, well, now he was a Marxist-Leninist. The sight of Lord Blackenor, who he knew so well, who he had admired for his suave insight, for his energy, for his devotion to his undergarments, the sight of that man grinning at his kinsmen, slaving in their steamy hell, it would remain with him for life. Later that morning they made plans. Velvine said... I want to destroy the darky factory and release all the workers. Pertram nodded. How? From above, eh? I'm skilled in the flight of the Archimedean floating system, but alas, we have none. We could steal one, Bertram said. Valvine nodded. Our best chance would be from London Zoo. You, Pertrand, and I could undertake that theft. The rest of the group could set up the raid itself. Sounds good, Gov. And so the plans were set. But Velvine foresaw a difficulty, which he broached as he and Pertrand forged their way up Eversholt Street on their way to the zoo that evening. I must wear a mask for the duration of the raid, he said. The darky owner is known to me. Who is he? Lord Blackenor of Highgate. Pertrand was at once suspicious. You know a lord? I knew there was a reason for them posh clothes. I don't I don't know him, Velvine lied, but my father does, that's all. If you're a spy in our group, would a spy be stealing a machinora from London Zoo in order to raid the factory? I don't know, probably not. I'll be watching you, though. Velvine knew he'd returned to solid ground. 
Watch me all you like, eh? I shall be loyal to the cause. I'm going to do this. Ruin Blackenor's livelihood. Strike a blow for Tycho and all the rest, indeed. Pertram seemed at best half convinced. But Velvine, converted, knew now what he wanted, and knew what he would do when the moment came. London Zoo, situated at the northern end of Regent's Park, was less secure than a baby's cot, and the two men made their way inside with no difficulty. In the reptile establishment, they spotted a chameleonic Archimedean floating system, which recommended itself to Velvine because of its colour-changing facility. And once he'd familiarised himself with the heterix and the two independent rudders, they were away. Apart from a couple of stops for the Machinora to catch pigeons with its sticky tongue, the journey was simple enough, and they landed in safety on the roof of the Gordon Square flat. They began the raid next day. All seven of the team had specific parts of the mission to enact. With the women, Velvine was dismayed to learn, as active as the men. But he could not tell them of his own skills, honed across the empire in acts of daring do, so he held his tongue. Having witnessed his abilities, however, Pertrand gave him a prominent role in the hit squad. Velvine piloted the chameleonic Archimedean floating system as the sun set. Their plan to land on the factory roof as the last shift of the day ended. Once settled, the Machinora changed colour, matching the dull ochre slabs of the flat roof with amazing precision. Velvine nodded to himself, then pulled his mask over his face. Remember where we leave this Machinora, Bertrand said. At night, it could be difficult to spot. The roof was accessed from below by a wrought iron spiral staircase, leading up to a small tower with a door in it. This door they forced using a gemio, creeping down the staircase, leaving one of their number to guard their exit, then moving on. In this way, they descended three floors, leaving two more guards and reducing their number to four one of whom was Sylvia Fermicelli, the Neapolitan safe-cracking expert, the other Fred Nutter, strongman. From a balcony, they observed the scene below. Each of the darky workers had a monkey on their back, while on a dais at the front of the factory floor sat an overseer, his megaphone, tipstaff and time-out bell at the ready. The atmosphere was humid and filled with leather dust, and every few seconds some exhausted darky would cough and splutter, then return to his steaming machine beneath the contemptuous gaze of the overseer. We'll sneak down and detain the overseer, Bertrand told Fred. Sylvia, you unlock the front door and open it for the darkies. Velvine, cover us. What with? Bertrand threw him his revolver. This? A series of slippery steps led them down to ground level, with Bertrand once having to switch his candle on because it was so dark. But five minutes later, they huddled in silence at a side door, awaiting the signal to go. Bertrand gave them a countdown. Five, four, three, two, one, on your marks! Velvine followed the others onto the factory floor, pointing his revolver at the overseer. The man stared mouth open. The darkies yelled, 
while the monkeys on their backs screeched and ran amok. For a few moments it was pandemonium, until Velveen saw Pertrand and Fred jumping onto the dais. The overseer snatched his megaphone and spoke. All employees remain seated. There's been an incursion. Velveen heard Pertrand's voice rise over the subsiding hubbub. Stand still. We're letting these people go. You will capture. Fred, get his legs. You raiders, do not approach. This building is patrolled. Ignoring Fred. Get his shanks. Fred dived at the overseer and tackled him to the ground, but the man wriggled free and staggered to his feet. At that point, Sylvia got the lock open, flinging the exit door's two panels aside and letting in fresh air, and a last crimson gleam of sunlight. Bertrand yelled from the dais, Workers, you're free! Run to freedom! But the darkies seemed confused. One shouted back, Where to? We live here. Another called out. This is our workhouse, ain't it? The overseer grabbed his megaphone. Do not run. You'll be tracked down. Remain at your workstations until the incursion is halted. Bertrand seemed annoyed more by the confusion amongst the workers than by the instruction of the overseer. He shouted, We're the Marxist-Leninist workers' movement in London and we've rescued you. Get out before it's too late and the monkeys jump on your backs again. Move it. A chorus of disapproval was his reply. But it's hairy out there. And we ain't got nowhere to go. And most tellingly of all, you got, you've not thought this through. Valvine stepped forward, raised his revolver and fired a single shot in the air. Everybody jumped, then silence. He leapt up on a chair and shouted, this factory is owned by Lord Blackenor, who's a darky like you. If you value your lives and your culture, escape, as Mr. Arakan says. But if you want to be ruled by one of your own, then remain here. Yet, you shall be little more than slaves. Well said, Bertrand yelled, cupping his hands to his mouth. But the overseer had other plans. He shouted, I'm warning you. If you don't leave this building right now, I'm setting the menagerie on you. We're not frightened, Velvine retorted, as the excitement of the moment intoxicated him. You do not have a leg to stand on, eh? Eh? Don't say I didn't warn you. The overseer ran to a wall and pulled a lever. Whereupon, from a concealed door at the back of the dais, a horde of miniature animals emerged. Tigers, zebras, lions, hippopotami, and much, much more. The overseer shouted, Charge! The Venus flytrap chamber was a room of Hieronymus Boschian hell, and when she walked inside it, Eustacia quailed. She and Cornucope were tied to wooden posts above which individual flytraps swung on vines. These devices of horror, she noticed, were fixed to movable branches which could be lowered or raised by means of levers. Gandhi approached Estatia, the tentacles of his left arm writhing. You don't mean to hurt me, a kinswoman, she said. He tapped his chin with his crab claw. You intrigue me he said. Where were you born? Calcutta. He raised his eyebrows. Indeed. Calcutta, you say. And is this upstanding Britisher colonialist dear to you? 
He is my husband. Indeed. A fine state of affairs, and a convenient one for me. In what way? Estasia asked, dreading the answer. Did you not notice the sign on the door through which you entered? Estasia shook her head. What poor spies you make. That sign would have given you a clue as to my plans for this country. Leave my wife out of this, you fiend! Cornucope shouted, struggling with his bonds. I am a member of the Suicide Club, and to all intents and purposes represent the British government. Deal with me, not her, for she is innocent. How touching, Gandhi replied, approaching Eustacia. A slim, noxious pink tentacle reached out to caress her cheek. You care for your wife, then? Leave her alone, sir. Gandhi took a few steps back. This really is too convenient. A Britisher and an Hindu have been together for some time. Perfect test subjects. Subjects? Eustacia queried. Gandhi began pacing up and down, avoiding the lowest hanging flytraps by ducking beneath them. We have developed a most cunning substance, he explained, with which I mean to decimate the Anglo-Saxons of this land, so that your empire, which I loathe above all other things, can finally be destroyed. This will leave Hindu, from far north to far south, free of malign influence. Home rule, you see, must be brought to the subcontinent using all necessary means. Including violence? Gandhi shrugged. Exclusively violence, he replied. I find it is the only efficacious method, he smiled, then continued. To this end, I have developed an Anglo-side, which will harm only Anglo-Saxons. But the widespread destruction, Cornucope gasped, the mayhem, the loss of Western civilization. Western civilization would indeed be a good thing, Gandhi replied, flashing Cornucope a black look. Now, once the Anglo-side has done its work, this country will contain only Celts and sundry immigrants. Meanwhile, my fighting machines will have taken over London, and I will rule, and then at long last the country of my birth will be free. But the king will suffer the same fate as your Charles I, except I will cut off his hands first. Estatia took a deep breath and said, You intend on testing the Anglocide on us, don't you? Gandhi grinned and nodded. How does it work? By relaxing the stiff upper lip, no Britisher can survive that. Your culture consequently collapses, since it is dependent on rigid hierarchies and emotional constipation. You utter fiend, Cornucope said. You mean literally to unman us? Gandhi laughed. Doubtless you see the irony of that. But, Eustacia said, couldn't women go into politics even contest you? Gandhi laughed again. Women, in politics, in London town, the moon will fall down first. Estatia nodded. You're vile, she said. But in the privacy of her mind, she was thinking, there is a flaw in your plan. You man. So, Gandhi said, you will resist my tests or will you submit? Do we have any choice? Yes. 
but refusing to submit will make it painful for you, though enjoyable for me. Then, in effect, Eustatia said, we have no choice. They were taken by hard-muscle thuggies into a chamber of medicalicity, where they were directed to comfortable chairs in which they sat. Cornucope was told to roll up his shirt sleeve while Eustatia had her shawl removed, revealing her upper arms. Gandhi's surgeon-in-chief, Misanthrop Mahavishnu, approached with two glass syringes in his hands. These, the wizened old man explained, contain the germs we have developed into the Anglocide. I shall inject you with the formula and observe the results, he grinned. But I think I can predict what will happen. Such is the miracle of our modern science. Perverted science, if you ask me, Cornucope said. Protest all you like, Misanthrop replied. Nobody can save you now. What about Alexander Fleming? Who? The Anglo-Saxon scientist who discovered penicillin. Misanthrop took a notebook from his pocket and jotted the name down. I shall enjoy investigating his work tomorrow, he said with a smile. Now prepare to feel a twinge of pain. Eustatia held her breath and grimaced as the injection was administered. Terrified, she turned to watch Cornucope, knowing that she was already resistant to the disease, whereas he was not. Be brave, she whispered. I shall be, he replied. For a while, nothing happened. They had not been tied to their chairs and were free to move though Misanthrop, Gandhi, and two white-uniformed Hindu nurses watched them from across the room. Then Cornucope began to sway and giggle, as often he did after too much coriander brandy. What's the matter? Eustatia asked. He turned to her, grinning like an idiot. You're looking very nice today, he said, his speech a little slurred. Eustatia glanced at Misanthrop, who observed in silence jotting more lines in his notebook. Gandhi smiled like a contented cat. Cornucope tried to stand up, but fell to the floor at Eustatia's feet. You're looking very nice today. Oh, I feel strange, dearest one. Darling, you're looking very nice today. Is that a new dress? Cornucope never commented upon her clothes. Eustatia watched. Afraid, but curious. He laughed. I, I feel free. Free? Gandhi looked at Misanthrop. Misanthrop shrugged. Cornucope lurched to his feet, then embraced her. Darling, he said, I feel a kind of warm sensation in me. I rather can't describe it. But you're looking very nice. I hadn't noticed, I hadn't noticed before how nice you look. Do you remember that time in Moo... Konikop, pull yourself together, Eustatia said. At all costs, he must not mention Moonbai, for if Gandhi discovered she had been a member of the rhododendron mob, her life would be imperiled. But I feel warm towards you, darling. Suddenly, Eustatia realized something. If the Anglo-side broke the cultural spell of the stiff upper lip, it could help Cornucope reveal true feelings for her. 
that never before had emerged. She said, Do you love me, Cornucop? Why, yes, of course I do. Oh, I feel rather strange. He hiccuped and slid to the floor. One of the nurses made to move forward, but Misanthrop put his arm out to stop her. I do love you, Cornucope continued. That's why I married you. Feeling rather... His eyes closed and he began snoring. Misanthrop and Gandhi walked forwards, and their manner was one of triumph. Imagine what would happen, Gandhi said, if the cabinet became so sentimental, if every member of parliament in the commons was so mushy, if every Anglo-Saxon in this country was a wibbling fool. Estatia nodded. Your plan is foolproof, she said. Misanthrop gestured for the nurses to pull Cornucope to his feet, but as they did, he awoke and became angry. You vile, swinish swine, he cried, pulling free and aiming a punch at Gandhi. The punch missed, but then there was chaos as Gandhi, Misanthrop and the two nurses tried to capture Cornucope through flailing arms, legs and a storm of profanities. In the confusion, Estatio was left alone. Ducking and dodging, she made her way to the tray of Angloside, where she picked up and pocketed a stoppered test tube. At length, the nurses managed to calm Cornucope. Misanthrop administered a shot to Valium and his victim was sedated. Gandhi called for his guards. Take these two into the resting chambers, he said. Feed them good food. Tandoori roti, pulao, bindi, matar and paneer. Give them flasks of pure water. Then kubani, narial and aru for dessert. I want them to be in the peak of condition when we head for Whitehall. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson.